Welcome back to the podcast for winners on this week's episode. We have a very special guest, our good friend, Ethan Joseph, who's a research associate at the Ohio Education Research Center at The Ohio State University. He's going to give us some great information about education, education policy, and some of the work he's doing down there. So stay tuned, and we'll be right back. No energy vampires. No energy vampires. (laughs) Americans love a winner and will not tolerate a loser. Americans play to win all the time. Hell for a man lost and laughed. Welcome back to the podcast for winners. I'm James. This is my co-host, Zach. And today we have a very special guest on the podcast, fellow Ohio Northern University alum, research associate for the Ohio Education Research Center in Columbus, and a very good friend of ours, Ethan Joseph. How are you doing, Ethan? Good. How are you? Thanks for that introduction, James. Yeah, yeah. It's your, your very special guest, a fellow winner. Um, yeah, the first yeah. winner that we're having come onto the podcast. Actually, very exciting episode. I'm, I'm humbled and honored. <laughs> yes, we're very glad to have you, and we appreciate you um, taking this time out for sure. Absolutely. So, uh, the way I understand it, you're on the episode to talk to us a little bit about some of the work you're doing and a little bit about um, education. So, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're getting into these days. Yeah, so the story about how I got into this, and as you said, uh, I'm a research associate for the Ohio Education Research Center, um, which is housed at Ohio State University. Um, we do we cover something called the Workforce Development System, which includes everything between um, employers and workers, um, and then on the other side, it would be students and educational institutions, and then the connections there between. Um, so about myself, uh, I went to Ohio Northern University with you guys, Go Bears, and um, this all started for me in a middle school classroom in 2014, it would have been, the winter of 2014, or 2013, rather, and I was uh, taking political science and education classes. I thought maybe I wanted to be a social studies teacher. Um, one of the classes that I was taking um, was going over kind of the history of education policy in the United States, um, focusing a lot on, on like how education evolves out of the industrial revolution um, and how the structure of especially like K through 12 institutions is set up to kind of um, meet the needs of employers. At that point, it was a lot of factory work and other things like that. So, um, People that know education policy well could give you a much better idea of what the connections are there. But for example, like the fact that you had periods, a day was divided up into different periods. Periods were set off by a bell. Um, students are grouped by age. Um, those are all kinds of things that, that weren't like natural. They, they came from someplace. Um, and so very much the, the, the system of education is, is something that's designed. Um, Anyway, so I am, as a part of uh, my classwork, I was sent out to do a field experience, which was like a week in a classroom. So I was supposed to shadow the teacher and see if I liked it, um, get a feel for the classroom. And, and as I'm sitting there in the classroom, I'm kind of like looking at the students and watching the teacher do his thing. Um, I'm 
uh, learning the background of the students from the teacher and I'm kind of like seeing in front of my eyes how all the things we talked about in that policy class were kind of playing out in the students in the classroom, how, how the classroom is very much a microcosm of the society. Um, and so, you know, if a student has, um, if the student doesn't have a strong foundation at home, like how that carries into the classroom, other students have, you know, all the resources and really supportive parents. Um, and that kid was doing really well. And that's not to say that it's all like set in stone predetermined, but just that there's factors outside of the classroom that, that, um, carry into the classroom. Um, and so I don't know if I'm doing a good job of explaining that part, but basically like I'm asking the teacher, you know, I'm pointing these things out like, Hey, I learned about this, um, in school. Uh, do you think that's what's going on with the student? And the teacher is saying, yes, I, I see exactly what you're talking about. Um, but there's not as much that I can do in my position as a teacher to change it. Um, just time and energy and resources, uh, I've got to do this job of teaching these kids and a lot of the other stuff I can't address. And so that's when my, I kind of got turned on to the, um, the policy level, like thinking about policy as opposed to doing the job of teaching. Right. And so um, fast forward um, after undergrad, um, another year after undergrad, then I uh, matriculated at the John Glenn College of Public Affairs um, to study uh, I got a master's in public administration and I studied policy and economics. Um, and then my capstone research rolled into a job with the Ohio Education Research Center. Um, and that's where I'm at now. A lot of the work we do um, at the Ohio Education Research Center deals with uh, the kind of using data um, and, and research to improve the education system. Um, we got, it's a big umbrella, but we cover things all the way from um, K through 12 issues, uh, all the way onto the, the workforce side of things, um, looking at the relationship between like technological change and uh, uh, um, demand for labor. Um, so we cover a lot of different things, um, but I guess the, the main thing is just that we're, we're trying to use uh, data analysis or data analytics to, to solve these problems. Um, working with, you know, partners that range from the private sector to the public sector. And not to get too off track, but so that sounds interesting. What's your day-to-day -day like? Are you doing a lot of that data analysis and structuring yourself? Like, do you code a lot? Are you kind of doing more of a, a review um, and putting reports together? You know, yeah, just what's, what's, uh, what's your t typical day like at the research center? Yeah, so a typical day... Um, uh, so the, the way that we're structured is kind of there's a front of house and back of house um, where we grew out of uh, it was basically um, a less formalized uh, partnership between a bunch of higher education institutions um, called the Ohio, Ohio Analytics Policy Council, I believe. Um, and then uh, quickly they realized like the value in the, the organization and then it, it grew into a more uh, formalized, you know, research center. Um, we kind of like our sister organization at Ohio State is called the Center for Human Resource Research. Um, and so when I say we have like a front of house, back of house setup, um, the front of house is kind of is kind of what OERC is. And we're doing a lot more of like writing reports, um, dealing with partners, 
communicating with our audiences and then the uh, CHRR, we have really talented uh, data scientists that are working with um, something that we call the Ohio Longitudinal Data Archive, which is kind of like the data backbone that, that most of our work uses, uh, relies on. Um, so uh, as far as my role, um, I'm relatively new at the OERC. Uh, and so a lot of what I'm doing is uh, coordinating projects, um, implementing uh, more qualitative research plans. So we do a lot of stakeholder engagement. We'll do focus groups and interviews. We'll collect data that way and then manage it and synthesize it and um, put that into reports. Um, and then the uh, data analysis is handled by um, some, we have, uh, we share personnel. So it's not, it's not so um, hard of a divide between the two groups, CHRR and OERC, but um, the personnel over at CHRR will do a lot of the data analysis. Okay, cool. cool. So do we see like, do we see um, work like this across like other states? Yeah, um, so the, a lot of states have um, education, uh, uh, let's see, they'll have statistics centers, um, they'll have dedicated uh, centers or, or um, elements of government that, like government age, elements of government agencies that focus on statistics. And they'll, um, some are specific to post-secondary education data. Um, some of those groups also look at workforce data that the state collects. Um, usually like the workforce groups and, I mean, it's all based on the data that you're actually collecting, right? So the, the groups that are looking at the workforce data and the groups that are looking at the post-secondary education data some of them are separate and in some states those are separate and in some states those are the same group um and so a lot of states have we work with very many states that have those kinds of groups um as far as having kind of like a more independent like we're housed at ohio state university um i think a lot of uh, we some of our partners are also housed at universities but some of them are are housed within uh, government agencies themselves does that answer your question yes it does okay yeah yeah um yeah and so i mean that kind of goes into um one of the projects that i i thought i would share um a lot of what we're doing at the oerc is kind of um I don't know if downstream is the right way to describe it, but of um, advances in the use of data as, as it's applied to you know, public problems in general, but specifically for our purposes, um, post-secondary education issues, and then also workforce issues. Um, and then also, I guess, techno uh, technology more broadly as it um, impacts the workforce. And then obviously okay. the connection there is that when we're, we're when we're educating people, we're training them um, to fill, to, to be employed, to be eligible for employment, and then also for their own, um, as a democracy, we're trying to make for more enlightened citizens. So that's also the work of post-secondary education institutions. But um, yeah, so the the project that I wanted to, to talk about um, is that we're trying to connect different states' data in order to kind of um, uncompartmentalize um, states' 
data work so that way they can look at um, they can answer questions across state lines so like people aren't confined by the states that they're in people move across state lines um, and so you can link so right now the way it is is that each state collects its own data and then that data is, is sent up to the federal government and then at the federal level you have um, organizations or agencies it just kind of depends on the situation um, that will analyze the data and they'll do their own things with it and they'll aggregate it or whatever the, the federal goal is to use that data. Um, but yeah. that data doesn't necessarily then get sent back down to the state level. So in some cases, the federal government is, is creating metrics with the data that's sent to them um, that the states don't actually create themselves, but would very much like to know about. So there's a gap there. And then there's also a gap because um, maybe Ohio and Indiana, for example, aren't necessarily talking to each other either. They're both, they're both sending their data up, but, um, and then the federal government can see how that relates to each other. But Ohio itself, the states as individual, individual states can't necessarily know what's going on in the other states. Um, and as I said, people don't necessarily stay in one state. And it's also hard to understand maybe a trend that doesn't, isn't just happening in one state. It's hard to see that trend um, if you're only looking within your own self, your own, as right. a, like you're a state looking within your own um, borders to try to figure out what's going on. Um, so the things that we're with that you can do with that, um, it's called interstate record linkage. And um, so for example, you can look at um, students that go to universities in metropolitan areas that are on the border. So like Cincinnati, the University of Cincinnati. Say so you have um, uh, students matriculating at University of Cincinnati. Um, you know whether they're out of state or in state, but you don't necessarily know where they're from specifically. Um, and so there's that issue. But then also um, Cincinnati's right next to Kentucky and the metropolitan area, you know, it goes across the river into Covington and Newport. So um, just because somebody goes to the University of Cincinnati but moves across the border to live, um, or maybe they get a job across the border, but they're still in that area. Um, as far as the data is concerned now, it's kind of hard to figure out like, okay, so where did that person go after they left UC? Are they just, is it just complete, is it a loss of investment, I guess, if you're looking at it from the state level where we've invested money in, in um, a student and now they're gone? Um, or do we know that they're, they've stayed in the same relative area, so it's not like Cincinnati has lost um, the University of Cincinnati grad, it's just that they're not in, on the Ohio side of the river. Gotcha. Uh, so when you're talking about like, what's the labor demand in, in metropolitan areas that are on borders, um, you can kind of, without having that information, it's harder to get a complete picture. Um, other things you can do is just kind of like where the, when I talked about how the federal government puts things together that the states don't themselves. Um, one thing there is looking at um, uh, data, institution level data and student level data to kind of track um, different students going into institutions and um, their progress as they move through and then what jobs they're getting afterwards and connecting all those different, um, all, that, all that data together to be able to tell a story. Um, that's stuff that, that we're still not, we're not able to do and that we're trying to do uh, with data. Great, yeah. That sounds like a, a very 
<laughs> intensive project, but it sounds like it's a step in the right direction. It, yeah, so it's I very. Oh, yeah, go on, Jibs. Oh, I was going to say, it's the most American thing ever to be like that compartmentalized. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, the technical stuff I have a hard time describing. I don't know if I did a very good job, but I don't know if my, if my, uh, if my supervisors would, <laughs> would, agree, <laughs> would give me a pat on the back or not with that description, but it is like the the main points are that it is very compartmentalized and that it would be better if it wasn't. <laughs> and yes. so you could answer a lot of questions. You could you could um, fill in a lot of blind spots um, right. if you could just talk to each other and to to break down the barriers. So uh, besides like the fact that it is compartmentalized gives you problems, um, how many problems does the fact that the two states or towns or whatever collect their data differently and think about it differently cause because I, I think of it um like just having gotten the petroleum engineering degree you know data analytics is big yeah. in every everything right now right and that they have a huge huge problem with that because there's you know how are 20 different companies out there doing something on the rig when they're actually trying to drill a hole and they all collect data the different in different ways they all want to keep the data for themselves but not give it away they all have different like standards for what's good data and what's bad data right and so then it just makes it hard mm -hmm. to bring everything together and synthesize it in a way that is useful right yeah i don't know um i don't know how different it is across public and private sectors but i do think that there is less variation between the states um so it's like the there's a couple so what i'm learning is that you have um data models which is like kind of like what we're describing with the oil rig where everybody's collecting different mm -hmm. types of data in different ways and then there's um data standards which kind of wrap around those models and it's the environment in which the model lives in so it's like all the all the agreements and all the uh the relationships that facilitate the the data model itself and then and then put the data model into action i guess mm -hmm. and so then the standards are kind of like the the culture that the data model lives in um and so the very like the number of different versions of that i think are uh it's there's less variation or there's a there's just less um data models and data standards types of data models and data standards in the public sector um and so from my experience, it seems like um, the data scientists that are working on post-secondary education data, there's more agreement on, on what information is important to collect. And there's less. So some states, what we'll have is like, if there's the set of 10 things that you should know about, some states only have five of those things. And some states have all 10. Mm -hmm. But it's... Um, it seems like it's less often the case where like one state has this set of 15 things that's completely different from this other state's set of 15 things. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah. And especially I assume somewhere at the federal government level, there's a think tank of people that are kind of establishing this as opposed to maybe in private industry things where people are in competitions. So yeah, that. that's definitely true. There's like, so there's a couple different, um, data standards they all have i know them by their acronyms which is less helpful in this context but like maybe there's um like four or five that are really useful um and only one or two of those uh one or two of those may actually have been used to create the other ones mm, and yeah. so 
um, if you can really hone in on just like the one or two ones that are the foundation for all the other ones, and there's not that many, um, and that you're right, that happens at the federal level, then um, what we're trying to do is bring the states into kind of that, uh, bring the state's voice into that um, equation and be like, so this is the standard set at the federal level. Here's what states would be able, would like to be able to look at, and here's what they'd like to be able to do with that data. And so you kind of use that federal standard and create a, a, a standard that's agreed upon by all the states that are working together. Okay, cool. And yeah, that sounds like it'd make a lot of sense for education just from the standpoint of it's such a local thing, mm -hmm. at least in the United States, right? Really and I should, in the way that I, I understand it. Yeah, I should clarify. <laughs> Which is not at all. <laughs> a lot of this work is being done. This, so this is most, this is, um, there's, uh, I guess, in the education policy world, um, you break, you kind of separate K through 12 from the post-secondary side. Um, K through 12, I think probably the reason that it's done is just because of number, uh, like just scale. Like K, the K through 12 universe is much bigger than the universe of post-secondary education institutions. Even when you factor in career technical education and vo vocational uh, uh, education, you know, what we call them institutions, but like schools or, or you know, programs, things like that. And so K through 12, it, the data goes by a little bit of a different set of rules because it's, um, it's, you're more can you're much you're you're more concerned about privacy. Um, you're dealing with minors, and so there it's like a different set of rules. So the work that I just described, where we're sharing between states and we're trying to um, set up a common uh, model and break down the barriers between states, so we can like create less compartmentalization. That's happening at the post-secondary level, and then the work on the workforce side of things, um, and not so much on the the K through 12 side of things. As you've mentioned, um, you're working on communication between the state level, mm -hmm. but uh, what what's communication like between on a more like micro level between like individual districts? Do you guys deal with data that uh, it relates to yeah individual municipalities, and do they communicate the same way? Yeah. So my understanding of how this works with us is that the districts record um, they record and report their data to the state and then we collect that in the Ohio longitudinal data archive and so um, I'm not exactly sure from my vantage point in the the OERC exactly what data elements are kept in the Ohio longitudinal data archive but um, yeah we can track K through 12 data okay so they kind of have the same relationship with you guys that states have with like the federal government. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I think that's probably true. Um, the I think the difference would be just like the scale and when you're at when you're talking about um, two different school districts, uh, it may not be as important to understand um, like the flows of workers between the two school districts because mm -hmm. you just have a smaller number of them 
Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. But I think it I think it's less problematic, but I don't I don't know if I can support that claim. <laughs> <laughs> I won't I won't mention it by name, but I'm trying to imagine someone at my high school putting a system in place to do data analysis on what their students are doing. And I just I just can't see it. <laughs> no no <laughs> offense to my my lovely hometown, but <laughs> Yeah, man, I don't know. Um yeah, so that's the the data side of things. Um, as far as like what's what I think is cool about education policy, like the fact that we're starting to be um, more collaborative. So it, it seems like probably I don't know what the time frame is, but it seems like uh, states have started. They have well developed organ like um, they have well developed. I guess, I'm going to use the word organizations, but they have well developed. Uh, organizations, I guess, that are collecting data and managing data. And so I, I think that was probably like the first step, right? It's just that to be able to, to do that. And so at this point, that's pretty well, that's well established. Um, and data between the states and the federal government is pretty well established. But now to be able to get um, data between states um, to try to, you know, break that, um, the, to, to, create less silo like data silos where every state's in its own kind of like data silo i guess um yeah but yeah um just being working more collaborative collaboratively with data that way um and then i think the other big thing um is looking at the relationship between uh technology and the workforce mm -hmm. so um you can, so with, with the first thing we talked about, you're looking at just like the flow of people through these institutions and, and outcomes, um, inputs and outputs. But then as far as like what's actually happening, well, as uh, like what you're actually training people for and what the, the job market is like that they're going into, that's kind of a different thing. Um, and that's when you can start talking about how technological change is happening at, at such a rapid pace and how does, um, how do, how do educators keep up? Um, that kind of thing is really interesting too. Um, so of course we're like in a weird time. Yeah. Um, with everything that's going on, how, how, is, how have you guys kind of been trying to adjust or anticipating some sort of change in the way we work or um, what the job outlook is for, yeah in the next whatever however many years this lasts yeah so the the my experience with this topic um started uh as i was finishing grad school i reached out to um somebody in in columbus's city government and the question that we kind of thought of was you know what are the jobs of the future and are citizens in Columbus prepared to fill those jobs. Um, and so that, that question is one that you hear, I think, um, it wasn't the first time I'd heard that question asked, you know, it's like a, it's like a thing that we're all kind of wondering, like what's going to happen um, if, you know, all the robots take our jobs, <laughs> that kind of an idea. Um, yeah. And is it that the robots are going to take all the jobs? What is, what is the robot? If we could be clear about that, that would be nice. And um, there's probably different robots and what do they do and what kind of, so, um, 
so I began I like uh, the most of the research that I was doing was trying to figure out exactly like what the technological change was going to look like. Um, and then as far as uh, looking at um, a specific region, um, trying to be more clear about what important jobs are. Um, so is it just the, the, the jobs that most of the people have or is it um, the jobs that add the most value and then how do you measure that? Um, and so I kind of I went about answering that that question and what I came up with was that um, you've got kind of, first of all, it's, it's hard to, that second part is hard. So like, what is an important job? That's hard to determine. Um, you can look at um, labor demand in a couple different ways and I'm not an expert, but the way that I chose to do it was um, created, it created two different groups there was an in-demand workers group or an in-demand occupations group and then occupations grouped by um, or the top occupations and industries that were clustered in Columbus. And the cluster means just that it's um, a traded cluster makes uh, is, is something that provides a unique advantage to the geography that it's in. Um, so I looked at the top jobs in those clusters in Columbus um, and I guess long story short, and I can talk more about this if you want, but um, the if you just look at like um, available like openings, if you look at openings in 10 years, most of those jobs are in, um, uh, most of those jobs don't require a, a uh, an advanced degree, for example. So you could, you could work them with a high school education. Uh, they also don't pay... <laughs> Uh, so that group of like 25 or so of the, of the most in-demand jobs in the next 10 years, mm -hmm. um, I found that a lot of them um, didn't, most of them, the majority, I'm trying to remember my research paper now, a lot of them didn't pay a living wage, which is a problem. Yeah. Um, and they also weren't like careers. So there was, uh, it was a lot of like um, shipping, uh, Occupations have interesting titles, like very specific titles. Um, but like people that are working in um, warehouses or janitors, um, you had your nurses and your like your um, operations logistics professionals, um, right. and there were a couple others on there that are that are like always going to be crucial. You're going to need them, but a lot of them didn't seem like career like jobs that would lead to a career path, and they also um, some of them seem were, were always talked about in the the automation conversation so like um tractor trailer truck drivers um, yeah. that, that's so you have it so they're one of the highest demand occupations but are we really going to train a bunch of people to do that job if in you know five years ten years whatever the time frame is they're going to be obsolete i don't know if that's i don't know like what that's so that's the policy question like what do you do for the do you do you push people to towards that um, to feed demand or uh, do you try to shift gears? No pun intended. Yeah. The that's a other, tough, yeah. That's a tough a question to ask. Yeah. Um, because, I mean, of course people, people have immediate needs. I mean, sometimes you have to like look beyond the data and understand that, you know, yeah. what's an individual going through. So, yeah, I mean, it might not be good in the long term, but some people need need that now and whatnot. But 
Yeah. Go on. Didn't mean to cut you off. So. Well, no. So then, just the other group where it was like, um, all right. So what are the what are the the jobs? The biggest jobs. So so the um, being jobs that make up the the greatest employment percentage in um, industries that are spe- like unique or special in Columbus. So these are um, jobs that aren't going to be like traded away or mm-hmm. um, uh, like nursing is nursing wasn't on this list because you can be a nurse in any area. Yeah. Um, so this is something that like it's unique in, in Columbus, the area that I was looking at. Um, and even for those jobs, so there was a higher median level of education required. Um, but regardless of education, um, it seemed that automation was going to impact those jobs. So basically, like what I found was just that automation at its worst, um, and we used like there's a statistic that's available, um, and I, I factored that in, and um, Frey and Osborne's computerization to, uh, coefficients, computerization coefficient, if you're curious. For all the millions of listeners, um, yeah, once, once I factored, once I factored that in, and I got like a really conservative estimate of what automation could look like. And in that scenario, even jobs that that you'd think of as being more protected just because you have a higher degree of education to fill them um, are at risk. So the finding was just that um, technology is going to uh, impact the workforce in a really big way, which was nothing really new. Um, some of the interest, the more interesting uh, little bits in there was the fact that, though, um, if you look at uh, just the implications of that. So, um, for example, I'll, I'm going to read off this list that I wrote down. So you've got, just based on the distribution of different populations in the workforce, um, some are going to be more at risk than others um, from any sort of, so what we found in COVID-19 is from any sort of disruption, not just from technological change. Um, but so it's, it's riskier for different groups than for others. Um, and that it also could increase economic inequality. And that kind of opens up a whole different can of worms. But the idea, the basic idea is that if it's harder to get a job um, that is going to, um, add a lot of value for you in your life. Like, so it's going to, it pays really well and it's uh, sustainable. If it's harder to get those jobs, um, then people with, with, um, means the awareness of them and the aptitude to fill them, um, they're going to be fewer, uh, basically just, it's going to be more competitive to get those jobs. There's going to be more people that are left out and the people that are already struggling will, will fall further behind that kind of an idea. Um, so the, like I said, the implications were, were interesting and, and we did some of that work with, uh, I've done some of that work with the OERC early on in a, in a, in a similar project. But um, so then it kind of uh, creates the question of, of how do you change education? Um, there's the economic side of the argument, which is interesting, but on the education side, it's like, how do you adapt education to, to meet, to function and to serve people in a changing world? That's awesome. And it also sounds like we're kind of screwed. So thank you. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> mandatory, mandatory robotics class. Problem solved. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so then it's like, uh, 
that kind of gets that, that. So it's like who pays for the robot? Who pays for the the equipment, right? In the robotics class, um, and if you do, you need a certain level of literacy and numeracy to to interface with the robot. And if you're already in a school district that's struggling in those metrics, then maybe it isn't as easy of a solution as you'd think. Um, and then that's just like on the logistics of it, I think. And then you could have the conversation, James, that you like this point you kind of brought up earlier, maybe in a different uh, context, but it's like, do individuals want to do those jobs? And how much does that matter? Um, yeah. So it's, yeah. It, but yeah, I mean, that's like the reason that STEM is as popular as it is, as it is, is because it seems like a lot of the jobs that, that uh, would be valuable going forward are, are in that field. But there's a lot we don't okay. know. So do you think, uh, like, in the future, near future, I don't know what I mean by near future, 10, 20, 30 years, whatever, whatever however you want to define it, um, that because now we are all connected more and the economy around us will be changing so much, and like you were talking about earlier, now there's this big emphasis maybe on using data and having better data collection practices and almost approaching this kind of policy more um, scientifically, for lack of a better word, that there could be some big fundamental changes to just even what the core curriculum is in a lot of K through 12 education. Cause as far as I understand it, a lot of that hasn't changed a lot. Like we've been doing the same types of math. I assume history and government and stuff gets updated to whoever does that. But uh, you know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yeah. So it sounds like the question is um, if we are going to make changes in K through 12 curriculum, um, even if we knew what changes to make, how would we actually make them? Because it seems like we've known about these things, like these issues for a while, and we haven't been able to do that, anything. Is that what you're saying? Um, yeah, sure. We can go in that direction. That's, yeah. Well, no, tell, I think I just, I think I just meant, what were you, what were you asking? Well, I just, I just meant like, do you, do you think it's going to change? But then um, if part of that is, there is all this inertia here and it is hard to change. Uh, yeah. Okay. So I, going, think, so I think, yes, yes. I think some of it will change. Um, and then, but likely, I think there's underlying problems, and to be frank, I know less about like this and how to fix it, but there's underlying problems that seem to, um, that will persist whether or not there's some sort of a, a federal initiative to, um, or maybe not federal, but if there's just an initiative, like um, we all, everybody in the United States gets the idea one day that we need to put robots in every single school or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, there's underlying problems that will persist despite the fact that we all want to do this thing. Um, and some of that is, uh, some of that is funding. Some of that is, is uh, the decisions we've made about um, standards in schools um, and what that means and, and uh, criteria for success, I guess. Um, and so I guess I, I don't, so I guess my answer is in, in school districts that are capable of changing, maybe not, maybe capable is the wrong word, but in school districts um, that, I think I'll use the same three ways. So like school districts that have the means, the awareness, and then the personnel to make the change, they'll mm -hmm. make that change. But there's a lot of school districts that lack in one of those three areas or, or more than one of those three areas maybe, and they won't be able to make the change. Okay, that makes sense. So, so if, yeah, if you're, a, I guess the idea that I just had is that if you're a country 
um, where you're only as strong as your weakest link, like if that applies, then you won't be able to make as much progress. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, <laughs> well I was just saying, so I was thinking of uh, back again in where I'm from, there's a bunch of little schools that are functionally all basically the same. Like it's the same type of people in the area, same type of little towns and stuff. But right mm-hmm. now, one of the high schools is like just miles, like light years ahead of everyone else. And it's was basically, they had those three things and that's the only difference was the appropriate yeah. personnel in place was there to do this. And now they've got all these great, like four college credit credit programs, all these like trade things and stuff. So lots of options for the students at that high school. And If you had to guess, was that high school in a nicer area? Um, I mean, relative to the rest of the county, kind of, but I don't know. It's all farmland. It's hard for me. Yeah. <laughs> like there's the a, there are a couple towns that have bad reputations and that one does not. But, okay. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. So like one of the, I was going to talk, this is an interesting issue in education too. I think it's like, um, if you're in a state where, and I have at this point forgotten like how many states are like this or not. I know that Ohio, at least, um, their funding model for schools is uh, not entirely based, but in large part based on property taxes. And so because of that, if, if your funding is coming through property taxes, then the value of your property determines the resources that you have for the school. And so if your property value is going up or down due to things like say you had a coal, like if you were a coal town and you used Mm. to be doing really well and your property value was high and stable, good to go. But the coal market has crashed and the, like those towns are really struggling. And so now their property value has taken a hit. And so the school has less resources. Um, if you're, uh, I think the, one of the stories about the evolution of like the city of Dayton in Ohio is that um, you had uh, just when, when, uh, when white people in Dayton started moving out to the suburbs, then you had a loss of value, a loss of wealth. So the wealth gets, gets moved out to the suburbs and now the, the school, the property values in Dayton are going down. And so the schools in Dayton have let, have access to fewer resources um, and when before they were, you know, thriving with, with more access to like the, the property values were higher. I'm probably explaining that story weird, but um, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I can uh, chime in, but cause I kind of have firsthand experience yeah. Yeah. with transitioning from going to school in the inner city to going to school to a suburban high school mm-hmm. and like it's night and day like for example my mom still lives in an inner city neighborhood that's really not great but um so of course on her street there are houses that are no longer uh, occupied that get demolished so one next to her house got demolished a few years back and um she actually ended up just buying the lot for one dollar basically <laughs> basically a free like quarter or a free like eighth of an acre like there's no value to <laughs> there's absolutely no value to that property whatsoever so um and i know that the cleveland uh, municipal school district if i'm cmsd i think yeah 
was so bad at one point that they had a case actually reach the Supreme Court about how severely undereducated some of their students were. So um, just experiencing that firsthand night and day, I, I understand how like funding and under resources can really affect and like going to making that transition for me was hard. Like I was behind. <laughs> And it was it was not easy to catch up, and it's hard for you know it definitely is a is a crippling challenge for so imagine being a kid who's top of your class just to get to get to college and realize that you you weren't absolutely prepared for you know some of the challenges. But that's a little bit of a tangent, but I just thought I'd chime in there. No, I mean that's a much more like you you stated that much more elegantly than I did. I think the the story that we're trying to tell is one of gentrification, right? And, and, or at least just shifting, you know, economies at the local level. And I guess, I mean, at larger levels too, and the impacts that that has on cities and towns and, and school districts. So um, tying it together, I guess, is that, um, and I wanted to bring this up because I think it's interesting and not many people are aware of it. Um, and James, you and I talked about this in our, one of our previous calls. It, the uh, funding model for Ohio schools was um, considered unconstitutional or deemed unconstitutional by the Ohio Supreme Court in the 90s. And I think, it, I think three times, I think just three times, it, it was a case that kept coming through the Ohio Supreme Court. And the deal was that the states would be given time to fix it. Um, I think it happened in uh, once in the 90s, maybe in 2000 and 2001. I think I pulled up the article. Just give me a second. Um, Jamie, can you pull that up? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we need a Jamie. <laughs> you you, you want to be our Jamie, Ethan? We, we can pay you um, nothing. <laughs> yeah, I'll be your Jamie. <laughs> yes. That would actually be fun. Um, then I could be a winner. <laughs> you already are a winner. Speaking of, um, this podcast is brought to you by, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Johnson and Johnson. <laughs> um, I saw 97 and 2000, but I think it, there was one more time in there. Anyway, um, I think it's in 2000. Well, anyway, that, so that's been like uh, 20 years, right? The 2000. Yeah. And so for a long time and that's where things have stood there has there has been no fix and i think i was reading just because i wanted to do some background before i brought this up um that there's some movement in the ohio house to try to address it with a with a, you know a different model um but it still hasn't been addressed and it's just kind of an intractable it's been an intractable problem for the last 20 years um trying to fix the funding model so that way it's less based on I think it's just so it's more secure, right? So it's not um, um, as subject to disruptions or changes in, in a local economy. Um, so that way you can give more, uh, you can give a better education to more kids. Yeah, I um, and Zach knows my stance on this. I think I've mentioned it like three times on the podcast, but I think when it comes to, and this is like kind of a microcosm of our national issue, but when it comes to the our intellectual talent pool i like strongly believe that we have the talent here but it's just underserved undereducated and under cared for to a certain degree it's like the argument for educating um 
women in the third world as equally as you do for men, like a lot of our problems would be solved just by having a larger talent pool that is well-educated, so, yeah. Yeah, and I think there's like, um, I don't know how to navigate it like like fully, but it, it seems like there's this conversation between um, like one side of the argument. So it's like, all right, so let's do something about these problems. Let's, let's fix education. Um, and I guess at least in the conversations that I, it seems like there's this argument between creating educational equity. And then on the other side, it's like, all right, well, if that requires a massive, um, you know, massive funding from the federal government. And I'm not saying that it does. I think that's probably actually the wrong solution. But um, depending on what your solution is, then on the other side of the argument, it's like individual sovereignty and, and being um, people like the pull yourself up by the bootstraps argument. And that, yeah. that there's just issues there. And I, I think it's, it's like you can have a philosophical conversation about that and still not be really helping the problem at all. Um, and I think basically schools are just trying to do the, the work of helping every kid get to like achieve their potential. Um, and you want the school to be able to do that without worrying about um, having, uh, you know, not being able to do that job because of a limited access to resources. Right. And obviously you can't have every school district that has, um, you're probably not going to be able to have every school, you're, every school district is not going to have the same resources, but at least letting every school district have the resources that it needs would be good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and again, you could have a conversation about how to do that, but I feel like it gets bogged down in more of like a political or philosophical. Just like <laughs> Everything gets bogged down into a political. <laughs> yeah. Somehow. Somehow. Oh, one thing with, oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> You could go, we could go deeper into the, the economic inequality thing just based on the, I thought, I don't think we talked about it, but the more interesting part of that was just about like how different people respond to changes in technology differently. So you have some people that don't even have food and shelter. And so they're like, yeah, uh, training in data science, like getting a certificate in data and uh, analytics sounds great, but Right. I don't have. Yeah. The, yeah. The okay. hierarchy of needs. Yeah. Yeah. Like some people are still at basic needs. They're not, they're not really at, uh, you know. Yeah. One of the things I got to about do, food and shelter and survival and not about data analytics. Yeah. One of the things I got to do. One of the cool things I got to do is go around and talk to um, different groups about like the relationship between technology and work and you'd have one group of people that um you know they're like they're business leaders right and they're talking about um the change the potential benefits of the change and how what we what we might want to do to accommodate the change mm -hmm. and then you would talk to like um we went to the uh, a, community in Columbus and we talked to them about the same issue and we didn't even get off the ground. It was mostly just like, we don't have safe housing. Um, right. 
the housing prices are getting bumped up and up and up. Um, and the only people that are able to afford them are people that are dealing drugs and that creates violence. Like there, that brings, that invites a whole nother element into the community. And so, I mean, we're just, it's there, it's, you are the hierarchy of needs. Like you're, so you're, you're still trying to figure out squares one and two, and it's hard to think about squares three, four, and five. Um, and then at the other, at the other table that you're sitting at, these, this group is talking about like four, five, six, I don't know how many squares I'm at now, but like, they're just at two different ends, like two different ends of a spectrum talking about this issue um, and trying to figure out how to align all those different groups needs with the reality that there is going to be change and try to figure out how to make that work for everybody is, is that I think that's the big challenge. Yeah. I think, uh, and this is like really like a tangent, but I don't know if you follow LeBron James, the LeBron James foundation and all the education work they do in Akron. I hear about it, but I haven't followed it. But, um, and forgive me if I'm mistaken on some of this, but, uh, a big part, you can tell that he has taken, or that the uh, foundation has taken into account that hierarchy um, with his program that educates, uh, well, I think he started with like third and fourth graders because that was, there was data. He started with a specific age group because there was data where that's where students started to fall behind. Yeah. And, um, he, of course, uh, opened the I Promise School, but he also opened the I Promise Village, which provides housing and food assistance to parents and families. So you can see that, like, it was a very thought-out process of, like, what are these people, like, the hierarchy of needs. Like, people want mm -hmm. shelter and food and safety before they can worry about, hey, what, you know, what do I want to do when I go to college or, you know. So it's a very... It's a well, very so good initiative. Like, and then it's like, what? So it's good in and of itself. And then my mind like goes to what? what is the appropriate takeaway? Like, mm -hmm. I feel like some people would say, okay, well, let's just replicate. If that's what we know, if that's what we found from that experiment, that so those students are more successful in school. I'm, I'm talking about this without knowing what the results are, but expecting, uh, you know, so I'm making an assumption that that's the case. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, that's my assumption. So if we can agree on that, then if those students are doing better and that was the treatment, then let's just, it's an easy solution. Let's just give, make sure everybody has housing, food, and, and uh, a safe environment. Um, but then like how you create that is an issue. Yeah. And I don't know. Sounds expensive. I also don't know that it should be like a federal thing. Like, like I don't think, I don't know that like a top down distribution of like a giant grant yeah. or whatever yeah. that goes to all, like a tax credit or whatever it would be that, that goes to all families. Yeah. I mean, well, that never works, but <laughs> with the, I mean, this is getting way, way out of anything that I really know about, but I, I read, <laughs> I read on the Twitters, my interpretation of, the, the housing thing is one of the biggest problems is just like the local laws and the way that people kind of better off people gatekeep their own communities so that they don't have to see as much stuff basically. And that mm -hmm. makes everything expensive. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that goes back. All, <laughs> that goes back a long ways to Jim Crow. <laughs> so that's a real yeah, I mean, deep I think, discussion about. 
<laughs> housing and yeah yeah we, we don't need that go all the way there. <laughs> just just uh, agree agree that maybe maybe a federal thing's not always the best thing but i don't know yeah not a policy guy just uh, just do science no i mean we're... the century i just do science <laughs> I like that these, these yeah. bigger problems that, that don't have clear answers they're not for me <laughs> yeah hey thanks for listening everyone uh don't forget to like share and subscribe if you haven't already um if you're interested in some of the, some of the data that ethan was talking about you can go to oerc.osu.edu and see some interesting reports and data they put together thanks for listening no energy vampires yes that's right <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.